Welcome to the podcast. This is Ben Pereira with Minor League Baseball, and you're listening to Level Playing Field. Welcome to another episode of Level Playing Field Podcast. My name is Randy Boos, and I am your host. This podcast is all about LGBTQ people in sports. I want to wish everyone a happy 2020. I'm talking to Ben Pereira, who works for Minor League Baseball. Ben's responsibility is getting all the minor league teams um, and helping them with their pride nights and community outreach, inclusion. He recently was promoted, and we talk about that. Before I play, though, I just want to let you know technology is an awesome thing. I'm able to sit in my Christmas pajamas on December 30th in Northern California, and he's able to be in Florida, and we're able to talk. Unfortunately, technology doesn't always work the way we hope, so pardon some extra noise. About 35 minutes into the podcast, it gets rough for about 15 minutes. You're still able to hear it. There is some staticky noise, though. Bear with it. That's where he's talking about some of the stories he heard while he went to some games, some Pride Nights. He has some really cool stories, and I hope you're able to listen during that time. I did clean it up a little bit, and I, th- I don't think it's as bad as it was before, um, and it is tolerable. I'm sorry that it has to be that way. I wish it wasn't. It was a bad AirPod. Uh, the battery died, so sorry about that. But without further ado, I want to introduce Ben Pereira from Minor League Baseball. Welcome, Ben. Thank you for coming on my podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Before we get going and talking about your involvement in minor league baseball, I want to get to know you a little bit. I read your article in Outsports that you wrote a few years ago now, right? Yeah, about like a year and a half, almost two years. What were you like as a kid? Were you always involved in sport? Yeah, so I grew up, I don't know the exact age I started playing sports, but certainly maybe around seven or eight years old. I started playing soccer. I grew up in a, a really... Uh, densely populated Portuguese community. Uh, my dad was a Portuguese immigrant, so soccer was definitely in our blood growing up, but I also played baseball, and really growing up, I, I was more of a sports fan than an athlete. I definitely didn't have uh, the most athletic bones in my body, uh, so I started to just own the knowledge of the game. You know, if you couldn't beat me on the field, I would beat you uh, in understanding the game. And so you mentioned soccer. Is that what your main focus was on as a kid, or were you like most kids and played all sports? Uh, I pretty much only played soccer and baseball. Soccer was natural for me to begin playing in, just the the family history of soccer in our family and soccer in our culture. Uh, I've always been a soccer fan, and I think I was a better athlete in soccer than I was in baseball. So I had more fun playing soccer because I was slightly better at it, but primarily just those two sports. What were you like as a kid out of sports? I mean, obviously an LGBT podcast, most kids sort of start to see something's different with them. In the early teen years, was it the same for you? Yeah, I would say it was early teen years. Um, in middle school, I started to realize that, uh, you know, I had attraction to guys and, and I wasn't totally sure as to what it was, but I knew whatever it was, it wasn't going to be okay. So I definitely had this perception of, you know, I'm not sure what I'm thinking right now. I'm not sure wh- wh- what these thoughts are, but when I'm older, I'm going to marry a woman, I'm going to have a family, and this is going to be the life I'm going to live. And so I think, 
part of me just had this like out of sight, out of mind for a little while growing up. And really, I, I, I played with that mindset up until I graduated from undergrad, where I kind of had this mentality where I knew who I was, but I wasn't really fully ready to you know, actualize it just because of my own internal demons and, and, and not understanding who I was and not understanding uh, the power that would come from being true to yourself. How did that screw with sports for you? I mean, it's screwed with sports, but it's screwed with every aspect of your life, right? I mean, if you're if you're hiding a piece of yourself, you're, you're not as good of a son, you're not as good of a brother, you're not as good of a friend, you're not, you're just not able to be your fullest self with people. And I always felt to an extent that I wasn't being genuine. Uh, so a lot of my close friendships, it was always tough when I had like real heart-to-heart conversations with some of my friends on their lives, and I almost felt disingenuous for not being able to connect wholeheartedly with them. And certainly it impacted sports growing up. You know, when you play youth sports, you, you, you particularly when you get into the teenage years, you do start to hear some sexist slang and, and, and homophobic slang tossed around. And, you know, every time I heard that, that language, it, you know, makes your your skin rise and, and you get goosebumps and you're aware that who you are all of a sudden is is really not okay, uh, particularly in the sports landscape. And that was really intimidating for me as someone who had a passion for sports and, and genuinely wanted to make a career in sports as, as early as sixth grade. I was looking up sport management programs because I knew that I had this desire to work in sports and I didn't know how I would do it. But, I, but definitely being part of the LGBT community, being gay, definitely caused me to think twice about the feasibility of even going down that path. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I, one, one story that I can touch on is, you know, when I was in eighth grade, uh, my middle school was sixth through eight, I'm from a really small town and called Berkeley, Massachusetts. There's no post office, no stoplight. If you could think there's a rural conservative part of Massachusetts, that's where I live. Uh, and so um, our middle school was small and it ended at eighth grade. And part of our eighth grade capstone project was to create a poster as to what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I knew really early on that I wanted to work in baseball, uh, particularly I wanted to be a general manager at that time. I was a big stat nerd. My grandfather could you know, take me around to his, his clam boils and parties and he would parade me around and, and have his friends ask me a stat, you know, what was David Ortiz's batting average in 2006? And I'd be able to recite it off perfectly. Uh, so I knew that I wanted to work in baseball, but uh, for that project, I put teacher because I didn't, I couldn't envision myself actually working in baseball. As much passion as I had for the game, um, as much passion and desire I had to work in sports, even though I knew it was relatively feasible because I knew there was at least degrees out there to pursue this career path. Uh, for me, I wrestled with the idea of being gay, or at least knowing that I was not straight at the time. Um, I wrestled with the idea of, of being able to make it in sports in that hyper-masculine culture, in that bro culture, um, and having kind of an alienating experience playing youth sports. Whenever I heard that sort of derogatory language tossed around, you know, I, never know, I didn't know if it was my world. Uh, I didn't have the same role models uh, that a lot of the young youth today might have, such as people like, you know, Rick Welts or Billy Bean, um, or even like a Gus Kenworthy. Uh, and so I just didn't see that, that space for myself. And so I put teacher down knowing that it's not actually what I wanted to be, but in the back of my mind, I thought if I'm a teacher, I can at least help the next generation be a little bit more open-minded, a little bit more caring and, and, and loving and, I don't know. I almost had this altruistic notion that I could help change the world by working with children to make the next generation a little bit better, a little bit more accepting. So, you know, what my experience wouldn't be the next person's in line experience. What gave you that passion for baseball? Was it the relationship with your grandfather or was it something else? Um, you know, certainly my relationship with my grandfather definitely helped m- helped me stay connected to the sport. You know, I mean, I remember during some of our World Series runs, 
granted, it is great being a Boston Red Sox fan in the in the in the 2000s in general. We've been successful for quite a while, and you know that my first championship that I really remember watching out of any of the Boston sports teams is the 2004 World Series, watching that ground ball go to Keith Folk and ending that 86 year drought. I think that part of it was living in Boston, being such a, a baseball town, uh, helped. Um, but yeah, definitely my relationship with my grandfather was a big piece too. I remember after every time the Red Sox would score or hit a home run, like we'd call each other and, and talk about it. And, and we would say like, that's the way, uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it. And we would just get all excited about it. And it was it was definitely a good bonding moment for us. And, you know, the Red Sox are, are always going to be my favorite team and, and uh, always will hold a special place in my heart. And I've, I always love baseball. I love the sport. I, I just love the stats. I used to get so excited during the trade deadline and the baseball winter meetings. And I'm not really sure what about the sport made me so made me gravitate towards it in a way that I didn't towards other sports because I wasn't particularly good at it. As I mentioned, I just, I like the game and I don't know. I, the rest is history really. So obviously you want to be in, in baseball growing up, you have this fear that you won't be able to because of sexuality. What is, what brings you back to it? What makes you go, okay, I can do this. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I'm not really sure at what point I pivoted. Uh, you know, so I went to school and I wasn't even initially going to major in sport management. I was going to major in business. Because uh, again, I still didn't think sport management was feasible. And, and I guess I should rewind a little bit that not only did I not think it was feasible because of who I was, I also doubted the feasibility of it just knowing that, like, you know, you know, how, how does one get a career in sports? Like this seems so unattainable as is. This is the coolest job ever. This must be impossible to get. So I got to be more practical in my career choice. Uh, so I initially went to school to major in just general business. And during my freshman year, second semester, I took as an exploratory uh, an introduction to sport management class. And, and it was there where I kind of learned that this is feasible uh, and I am able to make a career out of this. And once I had just that slight opportunity, like that door was open just to crack that I could make this work, um, I ran with it. Uh, but I also ran with it knowing that, you know, I wasn't going to be myself wholeheartedly. I wasn't going to be out while I was having this career. And I kind of, you know, during my initial, uh, I guess throughout my undergrad and throughout my first few jobs in sports, I had this, you know, strong conviction to myself that, you know, I'm not going to be myself wholeheartedly because I need to keep these two parts of my life separate. I love working in sports, but I also need to be myself a little bit. But I was very comfortable keeping those separate at the time because uh, I just wasn't ready to cross those two paths. And I wasn't sure if crossing those two paths would be detrimental to my career. And thankfully, it wasn't. You know, and let me back up because the way I first heard about you was throughout sports. And it's something I've never asked an athlete who's come out or, you know, someone in sports who's come out, how this story comes about. When you write this thing, you obviously contact Sid or Jim. And I think Jim was the one that worked on your story, correct? Yeah, it was Jim. What's that relationship like as you're talking about coming out, talking about writing this thing? Did you have a journalist, journalism background or? Um, yes and no, actually. So uh, actually, kind of forget about this. One of my first jobs ever working in the sports world was I uh, covered my high school football team for our local newspaper, the Herald News, based out of Fall River. And so I, I always knew I was a strong writer. I was a terrible student in math. I was not a good science student, but I could write a great paper. And I was always a good writer. So I, I, I was confident in writing that piece with Jim. And, and, and the reason I did it uh, the reason I came out in that manner um, is, is a twofold. A little bit as to how I got involved in diversity and inclusion work, and, I'm, and I'll try to be brief on this as, as much as I can. 
Um, but I transferred from George Mason to the University of Massachusetts Amherst because it had the top sport management program in the country. And I knew that I needed to go to that school. Plus, it was in-state and it was cheaper. And anyway, I, I transferred in. And I knew I needed to really engage in the campus community in a way that I didn't at George Mason because as a transfer student, it's just hard to socialize yourself. And I joined a club called the Association of Diversity in Sport, really just because it was the most appealing that just I got the best vibe from the people who were in the club. It had nothing to do with the fact that I was part of the LGBTQ community, that I was a first generation American or anything like that, because people in the club are primarily white. And I didn't really understand the diversity aspect. I just liked the people. And long story short, I ended up becoming the vice president of that club my senior year. And during that time, I learned that the club initially was a, uh, you know, historically black student organization uh, and became a black student organization to a uh, an executive board ran by all white people. And so I had uh, got my work started there, went to Florida State, uh, and then was like, I'm not going to start another organization here. They're, they're doing different things here. They're, they're in a better place than UMass was in terms of diversity. They weren't because perception on the outside isn't always uh, reality. And I learned some things that in that department that, you know, pushed me to want to create a space to have these conversations on diversity and inclusion. And I started an organization there called the Foundation for Diversity and Inclusion in Sport after receiving a grant from President Thrasher. And at that point, it, I was asking, and, and, and during that club, we would have speakers come and in and we would just have... I'm sorry, that was the president of the university at Florida State? Yes, yeah, President Thrasher is uh, currently the president at Florida State. Yeah, and at the time he was president. Uh, and so I was, I created this organization and, and really the goal of this was to create a space to have conversations on racism, on sexism, on homophobia, and, and a lot of these issues that perpetrate in our industry in sports that while it exists in other industries, I think it is more profound in the industry of sport, just given that it is so hyper-masculine, given the fact that it has been run and controlled by men, um, particularly white, straight men for, for many, many years. Uh, and so I wanted to create this space to have these conversations, and I would invite these high-profile executives from across the sports industry to come in and have real conversations, not about, you know, how did you get to where you are today or what is, what's my resume advice you can give us, but about, you know, what is it like to be a woman in that office? Like, tell me some of the tell me sometimes you experience sexism. Talk about what it's like to, to navigate professionally as a young professional. Like, some of, how does your identity play into your job uh, was what I was trying to get at. Uh, and I felt that I couldn't start an organization like that and ask these people to come up and be real and be genuine with me if I wasn't willing to be real and genuine with my peers. Uh, so here I was this president. I was doing all this work, building this club up, but I literally wasn't even out at the time. Um, I wasn't not out, but I wasn't out out, if that makes sense. Uh, so I wasn't mm -hmm. necessarily hiding it. If you asked me, I would say it, but I wasn't public about it. And I would say most of the people and most of my friends um, didn't know, uh, aside from a few close friends. Um, and okay. so I wrote that article as, as an opportunity to really come out to the masses uh, ahead of creating this organization, having these real conversations. I felt I couldn't ask people to be real if I wasn't willing to be real myself. So then were you already out with your family then? I actually wasn't out with my family at the time. Um, a lot of my family found out right before I wrote that article. It was like, hey, I got an article coming out, just a heads up. Um, you know, I think a lot of people in my family might have known or, 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 or thought uh, that it was a possibility. Um, but it was primarily just my friends who had known uh, before, well before the article had come out that I was, that I was gay. I wasn't, I wasn't open because I wasn't fully comfortable uh, with it. Um, you know, and I still struggle with, with my identity a little bit, but uh, that article definitely helped um, pivot me into a different phase in my life where, uh, you know, I knew that this is who I am. I'm embracing it. It's part of who I am. And 
you know, I wrote that story with the mindset that if, you know, one person reads this and it changes their perception as to what it means to be gay and work in sports or gay and want to work in sports, uh, then it was, then it was a mission accomplished. Uh, you know, I put myself, I tried to rewind and say, you know, what would 13 year old Ben want to read about someone who's about to create a career in sports? Uh, and I was definitely trying to be the I was definitely trying to be a voice for my younger self uh, when I was writing that article and was hopeful that, you know, someone else along the, along the way, regardless of their age, read that and felt a little bit more comfortable with who they are uh, pursuing or working in sports. You know, you mentioned your grandfather earlier. Do you mind if I ask how your grandfather took that scene as you guys bonded over sports? Yeah. I mean, they took it well. So I told them both in person and, uh, you know, initially they, um, they were like, you don't, you don't even have to tell us something like that. You don't have to worry about that. Uh, and it really was just as simple as that. It was, it was, of course, we love you. Um, I've always had a great relationship with my grandparents. They're two of the, the greatest people in the world. And it was nothing but love, uh, which I was very grateful for. Nice. Very nice. So you start this program or this organization. Um, at that point, do you still know you want to go and get involved in professional sports? Yes. I mean, I was always, I got my undergrad in sport management, my master's degree in sport management. I always wanted to have a career in sports. And as I, I, I guess I should rephrase that. Did you think that you would be doing it because you wanted to do it, but did you think you'd actually get involved in it? Yeah. I mean, it was hopeful, right? I mean, I was going through this and, and was really hopeful and optimistic that I would be able to make it in the industry. Um, and I think going through grad school, I was very confident because I was, I had a really successful grad school experience and, um, I had a lot of academic success and I was producing research that was, um, you know, recognized by peers, uh, in the industry and, uh, started my student organization. And I had previous jobs working in professional sports organizations. I worked for the New England Revolution, a major league soccer team for about a year and a half and, and had about four or five different internships throughout my undergrad and, and grad degree. Uh, where I felt really confident coming out of grad school that I was going to be able to at least make it in the industry. Uh, I definitely paused uh, because after graduating in August, I was unemployed for about four and a half months. And I really struggled with understanding if, if I was going to be able to make it in this industry. Uh, and, and, and another thing is when I was interviewing, I always wanted to disclose my sexual orientation. So I always disclosed that I was part of the LGBTQ community when I was interviewing for these roles. Um, because part of my awareness was when I released that Out Sports article was that you could Google Benjamin Pereira and that article would come up. Uh, so any organization that was Googling me, you could find that. And I wanted to be the first one to break that um, in almost a very uh, you know common manner with them where it was just nonchalant, just mentioning, you know, oh, another aspect of me is that I'm gay. And I would somehow work it into the interview where it made sense to discuss. Um, but, I, you know, definitely I would be lying. You just did randomly bur blurt out I'm gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was... It was when I talk about some obstacles you faced in your life or when they say, you know, what are some challenges you've had to deal with or, or what unique perspectives do you bring to this role, particularly when talking about diversity and inclusion. And ironically, I wasn't even interviewing for diversity and inclusion roles at the time, primarily with social media, but I would talk about the power of, of, of creating a social media platform um, that embodied a diverse and inclusive perspective. And I would use my own identity and my history with the sport and say, you know, if you were able to broaden your audience here, it could be so powerful. Um, and so I was able to leverage my identity and my background working in diversity and inclusion for all of these roles. Uh, but I definitely would be lying if I didn't say that when I mentioned them and, and, you know, some of these issues that I didn't get, if it didn't start creeping in the back of my mind that, you know, maybe this was going to be detrimental, not detrimental, but it just was going to hold me back in my career a little bit. Maybe, maybe that does intimidate some people. 
um, whether it should or not, you know, it's it still does, and, and particularly in our industry of sports, I do think some people still are a little bit uncomfortable with the notion of it, and, and um, it's, it's breaking the norm. Uh, so I might be the first LGBTQ person working in that office, and so for some organizations, it's a bit it's a bit intimidating and daunting. And you know, during the interview process, when I did mention it, I wanted to mention it because there was no way I was going to work somewhere that wasn't going to take me wholeheartedly. Uh, I knew that with conviction that I was once I had come out, there was no going back. And I wanted to be able to dive head first and, and just be my true self from day one. But I definitely I, I always was confident that I can make it in sports throughout grad school and undergrad because I was successful in many ways. Um, but when I graduated and was unemployed for about four months searching for a job and, and being candid in these interviews and, and constantly being that runner up. Um, for the position, uh, you know, it did creep into my mind that, you know, maybe this is a piece that is holding me back. That wasn't with regret. I didn't regret coming out because that was never something I regretted. But I definitely doubted the feasibility of making it in sports if I was struggling so much four months after finishing grad school with a really strong GPA and all these internships. And it was like, well, dang, if, if I don't have a job right now, am I going to get one? And then so once your first job was the FSU social media strategist job, right? Yeah, so that job was I held through grad school. Um, so my first full-time role in sports was actually with minor league baseball. I held many part-time roles throughout undergrad uh, and grad school, um, but the first full-time role was with MILB. Oh, really? So how did that come about? How do you see this job's open? How do you apply? How do you how do you get your yeah. foot in the door? Yeah, so when I was unemployed, I was job searching regularly. So I was constantly checking the job board, seeing what was posted, and uh, primarily was interviewing for a lot of marketing jobs, social media marketing jobs, market research jobs, because a lot of my background up until that point was all marketing. My research was in LGBTQ marketing. Uh, and so I had a, a lot of focus on on external uh, communications. And I saw this position in diversity and inclusion for minor league baseball. And for me, I was like, wow, this seems perfect. Because I had worked in diversity and inclusion for technically, if you consider my work with these clubs as work, um, which I did because sometimes it would be more hours of the week working on these organizations than I would on schoolwork. I had been doing this for three years and I've been doing it for three years without being paid. It was always a passion project of mine. And I loved addressing these issues and tackling these issues head on because it made people kind of uncomfortable and it challenged perspectives and norms. And uh, I was like, this is the perfect role for me. So when I saw the posting, I reached out to the director at the time, which was Vince Pearson. And um, luckily we had a few different mutual connections on LinkedIn and he had known who I was a little bit, and I had been able to get my foot in the door to get that first interview. And once I had that first interview, I know that I, I was going to go all out uh, for this position because it was, I felt, tailor-made for me because uh, this was something that I've been doing so much in my free time without being paid. Here's an opportunity to do what I love and get paid for it. You know, I love doing marketing. I love doing social media, but it's definitely not the same passion as, as D&I work. And uh, when I saw the position, I, I just knew that I had to – lay it all out and, and, and really put it all out there and leave it all out on the field, pun intended, to ensure I got this position. And I was lucky enough to get it. And uh, even when I did, it was almost a bit of shock when my HR director called me saying, you got it, because uh, there was still so much doubt uh, going through that four and a half months of, of, of job searching. Even when I did, position that seemed to be perfect. And the interview seemed to go so well. And I was so confident, but yet I always had that doubt. And it, it was it was a reassuring feeling to finally get that first opportunity what's it like that first day on the job you know it's sort of like your your dream prof profession like you said you're unemployed for a while so that first day on the job i mean it's just been overwhelming yeah it was definitely overwhelming it was exciting and, and a little overwhelming but 
you know, it's a minor league baseball. The the headquarter office is about a little under 70 people. So it's it's kind of a close-knit office. And I, I really felt a positive atmosphere kind of from day one. It was a diverse office uh, in terms of gender breakdown, racial breakdown. At the time, there wasn't anyone else who was out uh, part of the LGBTQ community. So in that aspect, I did know I was unique. But I started seeing that more of a benefit, particularly in the role that I had. Um, you know, while I am a first-generation American, an Azorian American, and I have that aspect of, of diversity to me, you know, f- outward-facing uh, my surface level diversity, I, I do just look like another white guy. So I know that working in DNI, the fact that I was part of the LGBTQ community did play to my advantage a little bit because it, it was that understanding of, okay, what this is why the person has that job. So it, I didn't view it as a something that I was fearful going into the office as who I was. I, I viewed it as an asset. And it also helped that, you know, I also had a fear of, you know, the hyper-masculine culture of sports. Uh, that always intimidated me a little bit, uh, particularly in the sports industry. And um, I was part of an associate class. They hired seven of us or eight of us at the same time collectively. And we all were, you know, going to work together in the same shared room office. Uh, and ironically, um, which is contrary to the, to the way the industry typically runs in terms of its gender breakdown, they hired seven female associates and I was the sole male. So in that sense, it was like this hyper-masculine culture I was fearful of was almost flipped. And now it was like a hyper-feminine culture where we had a lot of women in the room. Uh, and it just made a very different environment for me. And I felt, I guess, a little bit more comfortable not having to, to, to go into that hyper-masculine culture um, and feel, you know, some of that, some of those insecurities of inferiority that I might have felt growing up playing in sports. It was a very different experience uh, right from day one working at minor league baseball. How was that? I mean... It must have been interesting going into a room full of women. I would imagine it was much more accepting. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's so much sexism in sports. And so I think a lot of women in the industry understand a lot of the hyper-masculine issues that perpetrates in our business. I think a lot of the women who I worked alongside had their own experiences coming up through the industry uh, that made them doubt whether or not they were going to make it. Uh, so I think we had that shared camaraderie there early on and – it wasn't as if anyone, you know, had this privileged route to getting to that position. All of us had to work hard for it and all of us had some sort of obstacle we had to, um, we had to come through uh, to get that position, whether it was their gender or their race or where they were born uh, or their sexual orientation. We all had our unique avenue that brought us to where we were and, and, and unique obstacles and challenges we had to fight to get there. So your first year in minor league baseball, we talked a little bit before and I just read a little bit about it. Um, you obviously worked with the minor league baseball pride initiative. Yeah, how, that, how was that for you? How, how did you start that process getting all these teams from all over the country involved in this? Yeah. So my predecessor, uh, Vince Pearson, who was my boss up until June, uh, he left for a new position in June. He was the one who started it and it started kind of organically uh, because we had seen a lot of our teams start to start to host Pride Nights um, between 2015 and 2018. We saw a large increase, uh, and from 2017 to 2018, it was a 160% increase of teams hosting Pride Nights. Uh, and so we as a league office, our job is to service um, and be of service to the 160 minor league clubs across the country. Uh, and in, the, in our organization of diversity and inclusion, when we saw all these uh, teams start to host Pride Nights, um, we wanted to ensure they were doing it right, and we wanted to provide a resource um, for clubs who were interested in hosting this night uh, so they could do it right. 
Um, you know, when you have 160 clubs and some of these clubs have a staff member as small as one person or as big as 60, uh, we need to create kind of universal toolkits that teams can, can use as a blueprint to activate these nights. Uh, as well as be able to aggregate all of the data and, and aggregate the stories and the successes of the campaign and the weaknesses uh, and share them amongst all of our 160 teams. So if you know one team has a great pride night and did you know all of these things, it, it's creating a little case study and sharing that with all the other 160 teams so that they're aware of what worked here um, and really just helping teams play to their market, play to their community. Uh, to activate a pride night in the most authentic manner as possible and in the most successful manner as possible. But it, it started because uh, there was just a lot of teams who organically were just slowly beginning to host more and more pride nights. Um, and it all started back in 2004 when the first minor league baseball team hosted a pride night. Uh, and that was the Brooklyn Cyclones. It must be difficult in some way to have teams all over the country that were, like you mentioned, Brooklyn. You know, I grew up I grew up in California, and we had the San Jose Giants, a, a Class A team. And then you have teams in the South. Um, every Pride Night has to be a little different, right, to fit the the customer, the fan base. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're all going to be unique because the way you're going to host a Pride Night in Brooklyn and the way and what's going to attract that community to come out to a game in Brooklyn is going to be different than what's going to bring that community out in Biloxi, Mississippi. It's going to be different in in uh, Des Moines, Iowa, different in San Jose, different in Eugene, Oregon. So it is very unique and, and no two Pride games were alike. Uh, and I guess, you know, wh what I told all of the teams when they were hosting these activations and, and what we push uh, from our office in any activation, whether it's, you know, a uh, one of our Copa de la Diversión, our Hispanic Fan Engagement Games, our, uh, whether they're going to host a, a Negro League Centennial Night, whether they're going to host a Pride Night, is to engage with community stakeholders. So to build a little committee, in this case, build a Pride Committee. Um, try to find a, a local organization that is that is doing work for the LGBTQ community. Uh, try to find a, a, a business leader, a politician as part of the LGBTQ community. Um, try to find um, an organization at, at a university that, that does this work and bring together a committee of people who you can soundboard with, who you can say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this for our Pride Night. What do you think? Uh, and in some cases, and in many cases, actually, this, this committee can help uh, our clubs um, from falling into traps uh, and, and, and creating an activation that, while it might be good in spirit, um, you know, doesn't connect with the community in the way it should have. Uh, so no, no two Pride Nights are alike, and, and hopefully no two Pride Nights are alike because they're connecting with their local leaders and no two communities are alike. Uh, so Eugene is very different than Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Uh, so their Pride Night shouldn't look the same. Uh, and that's what we saw across the country was 71 unique events uh, throughout the year. Well, what were some of the things that you found that just didn't work? Were, were well, there things? Yeah, there was definitely some things that didn't work. Um, I think some teams, I, I think one of the biggest things that didn't work was a lack of communication. So sometimes teams who, or the team within the organization that was putting on the pride night was not always in communication with other parts of the office. And so you would see some cross activations um, that were just distasteful, uh, particularly a few of our teams and, and a few of our fans reached out to the clubs there and some fans reached out to our office when some of our teams cross-promoted their Pride Night with an existing uh, corporate partnership with, say, an organization like Chick-fil-A, um, who has uh, a really extensive history with um, just regressive 
behaviors in the LGBTQ community and just being discriminatory in some of their, uh, or, the, or the organizations that they work with being discriminatory in, in their practices through working with the LGBTQ community. Um, so there are issues, issues like that. Primarily, it was issues of sponsorship um, that we saw. Uh, and then there were some issues with some teams, not many though, to, to be fair, where some people didn't feel they did enough, that it was, you're just painting your logo rainbow. Uh, and that was every once in a while, you would you would hear that from one or two clubs. And, and, and to give those clubs credit, it might have been just their first year doing it. And, and I give them credit for just putting their foot in the water. And it's a continuous process. And this campaign right. isn't going to be done in one year. And the impact isn't going to be felt in one year. Um, you know, we have to allow these teams to grow in the space a little bit too. And, and you can't expect their first Pride Night to be uh, a massive success. For some teams, it was. Uh, but for some teams, it's going to be a long growth of understanding that community better and building those relationships and um, to give credit to some of the teams who who did have those issues uh, you know one of them being my local club here in Pawtucket had a little bit of an issue with a, a Chick-fil-A cross promotion and um, a, a member who, of the uh, someone who do up the first pitch was a little controversial as well but after that game you know their their president of the organization Charles Steinberg made it a point to connect with that community and to go out and and to have lunches and to uh, attend drag brunches and, and to host meetings with the community because he was so bothered by the fact that he did it wrong that he wanted to double down and really engage in that community uh, in an even more genuine manner manner to make sure they're doing it right. So all some teams, uh, for the most part, it was it was a, a huge success. Um, our Pride nights throughout the throughout the season and uh, our attendance numbers show we had actually had on average our, our Pride nights drew eight percent higher crowds uh, than non Pride nights. Um, so they were very successful in that sense. Uh, and a lot of our teams who did have hiccups, um, there were still silver linings. Uh, even, even statistically, the worst attended night was a huge success if you just spoke to a few different people in that, in that audience. You know, you, you sort of glossed over it, so I could delete it if you want me to. But the family that threw out the first pitch at your local was Sean Spicer, and obviously it made the news. Yeah, I mean, it made the news, so I mean, it can be discussed. Uh, you know, Sean Spicer was asked about the first pitch, and, and in that scenario, I actually met with the Pawtucket Red Sox front office and, and discussed, you know, what happened, and, you know, particularly with it being my my local club, I was kind of like, dang, you know, we had all this this entire year of, of very little controversy, and, and the Sean Spicer story came out, and uh, it definitely caught a lot of national press, and, and, and so that's how the world works, you know. One bad story comes out, and all of a sudden, the Boston Globe covers it, and, and we had all these great success stories throughout our season and that's the one that stuck the most but the issue with that one was and, and I can totally understand why he was invited to throw out the first pitch granted that day wasn't the best but Sean Spicer sat on a board um, of a charity that gives out uh, wheelchairs to wounded veterans and so there was a wounded veteran who is from Rhode Island uh, who was going to receive this wheelchair and the Pawsocks wanted to host him for a pregame ceremony the nonprofit, they want the board member, Sean Spicer, to be there because Sean Spicer is a Rhode Island native. The only day during that month where the two of them would have been in town on the same night when the Pawsocks were home was on Pride Night. The people who were organizing that portion of the activation, who were having Sean Spicer uh, and this nonprofit come out for that game, were not really in the 100% communication with the staff that was organizing the Pride Night. And they kind of, it was kind of a crash collision. And, uh, you know, to be fair, when I spoke with the club, they didn't really feel any negativity toward during the game. Uh, they didn't really feel any backlash during the game. There wasn't many fans who complained during the game. A lot of it was after on social media, and rightfully so. Um, but in that scenario, you know, it was it was an example of the team having 
the right mindset at heart um, for all parties involved, really. I mean, getting a, a wheelchair to a wounded veteran is a noble cause um, on any merit. Uh, but given you know, the history with Sean Spicer um, and the Trump administration's policies on the LGBTQ community, it was seen as distasteful, and rightfully so. Uh, but that's, a, that's, space for, that's, that's room to grow. It's room to grow, and I'm confident that Pawtucket's going to come back next year and, and host a really nice, really powerful Pride Night, and um, they've already been working on it and, and, and being proactive in listening to that uh, LGBTQ community in this region um, here in, in Pawtucket uh, to ensure they don't make the same mistakes twice, and that's what it's all about. It's about learning, and, and I think particularly in the space of diversity and inclusion, there has to be room for forgiveness. There has to be room for growth. Uh, because everyone's learning in this space and it's constantly changing as well and while it's frustrating when those stories come out and, and particularly frustrating when the media covers it so extensively and all the, all the victories we had throughout our, our, um, our campaign wasn't as extensively covered uh, you know it's, it's okay because that's just the way it is and ultimately I'm confident that the good strongly outweighs uh, the bad stories that came out and um, I'm proud of the growth they've already shown just in a few months since that happened. And uh, like I said, I'm very confident that moving forward, they're not going to make that same mistake twice. Yeah. And I'll, one more question. I'll, we'll move past it, but how disappointing were the people who put on the pride night to have that portion of it be the part that makes the news and not the event that they put on? I mean, did you talk to them about that? And cause yeah, it must've I mean, been, yeah, it's, it's immensely disappointing because a lot of what they do is good. And so they worked with all these different local, I think they worked with like four different local LGBTQ organizations, uh, brought them out to the ballpark, helped them raise awareness and advocacy. Um, if I'm not mistaken, there was a fundraising component where all those organizations received some monetary donations from the organization. And they did do a lot of good. And and and, and beyond just talking, a lot of our teams did a lot of good and that story stuck the most. Uh, and if you Google MILB Pride, that story does come up. So it's hard to really even not talk about it because certainly it was our biggest media story last year, despite the fact that, you know, some of our clubs did some really, really cool things uh, that didn't get the coverage. I think that's just, I think that points to a bit of just the media culture we have today. You know, for example, our club in Lexington, um, Kentucky received a statewide award from the Secretary of State Allison Lundigan Grimes for their work on their Pride Night. They raised over $20,000 for the local LGBTQ community, uh, and they were recognized by the state for being just um, stewards of, of community leaders uh, and, and, and driving such a big impact just on one night. Um, but, you know, that story isn't what's going to be heard. What's going to be heard is, is oh, the Postbox brought out Sean Spicer and that's what's remembered, unfortunately. Yeah. Let's move on from that, though, because I want to talk about you actually traveled to, you said, six games during yeah, the year? A Pride Night in Canada. I went to a Pride Night in Eugene, Oregon, a Pride Night in Hillsboro, Oregon, Pride Night in Bradenton, Florida, Pride Night in Clearwater, Florida, uh, Pride Night in Brooklyn. So actually five, five games. Being physically there and seeing these events each night, what was the feeling going on in, in your own, you know, head and heart? And then you uh, were obviously there for a job, so you obviously were working. I mean, how do you how do you manage the the two sides of yourself? Yeah. Well, first off, in terms of a job, I mean, how cool was it that my work trips just to go to baseball games across yeah. the country? <laughs> That is pretty cool, and I'm very lucky and blessed uh, that that's those are my work trips. 
but you know, getting to go to those games and see the activations happen in person uh, was incredibly powerful, professionally powerful to see, you know, when you're in the league office and you're working in this, you know, we have a very standard nine to five job. We don't go to the ballparks very often. Uh, it's not part of our job. Um, so the opportunities that we do get to go out and see our work activated is powerful because you understand the impact on a much deeper level when you're there experiencing it. Um, personally, it was powerful too, because I mean, the power that would have had on me, I mean, I attended Paw Sox games throughout my childhood, and that's our, our local team in Pawtucket, and, and to, to have a pride night, to have been to a pride night if, when I was that age would have been really powerful and impactful. So part of me, throughout this job, really, I, I think about what would have made the biggest impact for me as a child, and, and, and knowing that these pride nights uh, were so impactful for so many uh, was immensely rewarding. And, you know, I have, I have so many stories from speaking with fans, you know, what are the questions when I was out there, you know, typically I was there to survey fans um, to understand the social cultural impact of these pride nights. Because when we when we were analyzing the success of this campaign, we knew that it wasn't just going to be oh ticket sales will show whether or not this is a successful night or whether or not they should host it again. You had to understand how you were connecting with different members of the community and who were you bringing out that had never been to a game before because of this night. Um, you know, and there's there is no campaign, there is no activation. Uh, no bobblehead night, no bark in the park night, no thirsty Thursday night that is going to have as much of an emotional connection and impact uh, as a pride night because you're playing something very personal. Uh, and, and one story I can share um, comes from what was statistically one of our lowest nights uh, in terms of attendance for all of our pride nights uh, throughout the season. That was in Bradenton, Florida. And there was a whole reason why it was lowly attended, not just because it was pride night. It was also raining. It was 4th of July weekend. A lot of people were gone. And it wasn't just it wasn't the best date for it. Um, regardless, though, when I was speaking with fans in that stadium and asking, you know, what does this night mean to you? I mean, I spoke with one fan at the end of the game. And this was a man. He was in his late 60s. And he was there with his daughter, who was maybe in her late 20s. And I asked him a whole list of questions before I get to this last one, which is, what does this night mean to you? Um, and what a pride night like, can I mean to you? And he just paused, looked at me, and his eyes just started to water. And that was immensely powerful. And then I almost felt disingenuous trying to type down what he was saying. I had to just, you know, put down my notes and, and, and just connect with him on a one-on-one -on -one level. And he just spoke about, you know, how he grew up as an athlete, uh, you know, 60 years ago. And... Um, always loved sports, knew he was gay for a long time, but could never imagine him accepting his identity, could never imagine him having his identity celebrated at a sporting event, let alone at a sporting event with his daughter right next to him. Um, and it was just an incredibly powerful moment for him where that Pride Night meant everything to him. Uh, and it was so validating for him. And he felt so seen and, and, and appreciated and loved. And to see someone cry and tear up and get so emotional and just lose control of, of, of their emotions because of an activation that I helped put on and that I helped spearhead from our league office. I mean, it was the most incredibly powerful moment of the entire experience for me. And that's just one of many stories. For the sake of time, I'll only share one other one that I think was really powerful. And it comes from uh, our club in Hillsboro. And um, it was actually one of their account executives, or I'm actually not sure of his title, but one of their organization members, uh, Adam Good, he spearheaded the Pride Night for, for that club up in Hillsboro. Um, and he's straight, and uh, he spoke with some fans, uh, particularly one fan group who came in. It was a family of four. It was a, a straight couple of four. 
uh, and they had bought the four pack of tickets they had put out for that night, and they were all decked out in their Hillsboro Hops Pride gear. Um, and he asked them, you know, you're not who we would think we would be attracting to this game. You know, this is a straight couple with two kids and all decked out in the Pride gear. What brought you out here tonight? Why are you coming out to this game? Um, and that family had said, you know, the reason we are here is we want to show our kids that love is love. We want to show our kids that we don't discriminate. We want to show our kids that we will love them no matter what. Uh, and so that was a really powerful impact of this campaign that I didn't initially expect um, was that it's an opportunity to teach young children about uh, about the LGBTQ community and about acceptance and about love. And it's a very easy family atmosphere. Like minor league baseball is, a, you know, it's always been a, a positive family atmosphere. And here's an opportunity for these families to have these conversations that might be a little bit difficult, but when you throw a baseball game in the backdrop, it's a little bit, sometimes for some families, a little bit easier to discuss. And so there's endless, endless powerful stories. And and I lied when I said that was the only one I was going to discuss on because there's also a lot of powerful stories from front offices as well. And I had quite a few executives um, who worked throughout the country in our front offices of our 160 clubs uh, as high up as general managers um, approach me and say, hey, Ben, like, I'm really proud of the work you're doing. And I want to let you know that you know, I'm part of the LGBTQ community too. And, and that was really powerful too, to realize that not only are we having an impact on fans uh, and communities, but we're having impact on our own front offices because there are people who are in our front office who didn't always feel comfortable being themselves, but seeing their team host a pride night makes them think twice about, you know, whether or not they're going to be accepted when they do come out. You know, you mentioned that you don't get a chance to go to ballparks often, so you don't really interact with the players, but was there any feedback you heard back from players either directly or indirectly about these pride nights? Yes. Uh, so there's good and bad, right? I mean, uh, when you think about minor league players, uh, you know, the perspective needs to be held that, you know, a lot, quite a few of these players are international. And so the perception internationally of uh, LGBTQ rights varies depending on which region of the world you're in. Um, a lot of them are young. Uh, so we're talking 18 to 22 year olds. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of ignorance at that age. And certainly I, I had my own ignorance when I was 18. And uh, there were some some jokes I might have made even towards the LGBTQ community when I was younger that might not be that aren't appropriate. Um, and so I think there there does need to be a little bit of nuance uh, in the perspective of players. And there were some that were that were you know made jokes about it or or, or asked why why are we doing this night or why is it important? And certainly I think it helps that almost every single major league club uh, does host a pride night. So for these younger athletes, it is you know this is the norm. This is how it's going to be. Uh, throughout your career, so you better just get on board, and you know you don't have to march in the parade, but it's a pride night, and, and you got to go out there and you got to play, and it's just like any other night. And there's lots of other activations that minor league teams do. You might be asked to wear a SpongeBob jersey one night, and or, or host a um, you know, plenty of silly activations are done throughout minor league baseball. That's what makes minor league baseball so fun. But you know we did hear some some negative feedback from players. We also did hear a lot of positive feedback from players. Um, you know, our club out in Eugene, Oregon, uh, they brought out Candace Gingrich, uh, Newt Gingrich's sister, who is uh, non-binary, um, and they spoke to the, the locker room before the game, uh, and they talked to the players about how powerful this night meant to the LGBTQ community and, and what it meant to them and what they're playing for and what it stands for. And, you know, I spoke with some executives at Eugene who spoke to some players, and, and they were really glad that they were hosting this night. And, and Eugene, they actually wore pride-specific jerseys. They were the first uh, minor league or first professional baseball team, that's affiliated baseball team, uh, 
um, that wore pride-specific jerseys, so the players actually wore rainbow uh, on that night. Uh, and a lot of them were really proud uh, to wear those jerseys and uh, spoke about members of their family who were part of the community who came out. Uh, and, there was, uh, and then another story there is the GM there actually bought his grandmother who uh, was rejected um, throughout his childhood for being a lesbian and it's still not really talked about much in their family. And he hadn't even really had a, a genuine conversation with her uh, about her being a lesbian, uh, but was able to bring her out to that pride night and, and have that conversation. And so I think holistically, um, these pride nights really allowed for players, for fans, for front office executives to expose themselves to a community that they otherwise were I guess, for lack of a better word, intimidated by uh, in some matters or, or are uncomfortable with talking about. And it allowed an opportunity for, for these conversations to be had and uh, for, the, for the, dialect, um, the dialogue to begin. Do you know offhand how much money was raised for LGBTQ uh, nonprofits through these Pride Nights? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was over $60,000 raised for over 150 community partners uh, throughout the country. Um, and that's something that we're certainly looking to increase come year two. But to have that kind of impact in local community organizations, um, you know, forget the fan impact, forget how it benefits minor league baseball. The fact that we're making LGBTQ communities stronger uh, in, in all of our uh, pride cities is incredibly powerful. Because whether you're a baseball fan or not, uh, in the city of Eugene, you know, the HIV Alliance, uh, I want to say they raised about at least $1,500 for their local HIV alliance uh, just on that night alone. And I spoke of Lexington who raised, um, I want to say it was exactly around like $16,000 uh, they raised for their local area LGBTQ organization. So the impact was, was profound and, and extended far beyond our ticket sales and the way it impacted our fans because we were able to really make uh, monetary impacts in the community. What is success for this year, this first year? Well, I mean, maybe success that your your bosses put on you or that you put on yourself. What was a successful year, and were you able to achieve that? Yeah, that's two different questions then. Because for me, success for this, uh, I, ideally, I just wanted to have no negative stories. You know, there was a lot of fear going into this campaign from a lot of people from across our league as to how this would be perceived, uh, and would there be any negative backlash from it. Um, and would it be too controversial? Should we have not touched this? And so to see, you know, the stat that I'm most proud of is that there was zero ballpark altercations, not one incident out of ballpark. So there was not one pride night uh, where there was a riot or a protest or an angry fan or some hateful rhetoric thrown out. All of these went off smoothly. And so for that, that, that was success for me. I wasn't looking at attendance. I was looking at could, the, could all these cities uh, from the most reddest of counties um, the most liberal areas, at least post a pride night without controversy. And aside from Sean Spicer throwing out the first pitch, there really wasn't any controversy at these games. Um, the only other major controversial moment we had uh, during our campaign um, was in uh, Lakewood, New Jersey, uh, the Lakewood Blue Claws. Um, there was uh, an Orthodox rabbi um, who protested the fact that the club was going to host a pride night and he uh, decided to host a rally and bring some of his parishioners out uh, in front of the stadium a couple days before him to protest that the Blue Claws were hosting a Pride Night. Um, and while that was controversial and did generate some press about our game, uh, it ended up actually benefiting the club in the long run because people in that community realized, like, oh, oh shoot, we now have to go out and support the Blue Claws even more. Uh, so their Pride Night sold out before gates even opened. 
um, which is which is awesome, which is awesome. So for me, success was just having no incidents uh, happen at any of our ballparks. Um, and then, of course, the ticket sales help. And so to see that our attendances were higher, it were 8% higher than non-Pride Night games, um, that helps legitimize it moving forward for other clubs who might have been on the fence. Uh, so to see Pride Night be successful in places like Charleston, West Virginia, in places like Clearwater, Florida, in places like uh, Omaha, Nebraska, um, you know, to see these Pride Nights be so successful throughout the country um, is going to help other clubs in subsequent years. And we're going to see more teams host Pride Nights in 2020. We don't have an exact number yet, but it's already looking like it's going to be upwards of 90, which we had about 70 last year. So at least 20 more teams are going to be joining the campaign next year, which I put as that over 50% of our league hosting Pride Nights. Um, and that's powerful. Is, um, for me, what I want to see is growth consistent year over year. Um, growth of these individual clubs, doing a little bit more for their community, uh, making a bigger impact uh, in terms of fundraising for the local community, um, building stronger connections, not only just on that single game, but throughout the year. Um, so don't just go out to that you know, LGBTQ resource center and ask them to partner up for one game. Look for continuous ways to connect with them throughout the year. Build genuine relationships with this community throughout the year um, and throughout the years, plural, uh, and consistently do this. And uh, you know, I'm proud to say that as of right now, none of the teams that hosted Pride Nights last year uh, are not going to host one next year. Everyone who hosted one last year is planning on hosting one again this year, which oh, shows nice. that universally it was considered a success for all of these markets, even in some of those places where you would think, oh, that's a bit tough. Um, one, one last thing on Pride, then I want to touch on um, your job change and, and one of the things for next year. Have you noticed a difference in, in being the gay guy in the office versus – um, maybe if you have a boyfriend or a partner, bringing him with you to events. Is there a difference for you in your reaction from seeing in real life as opposed to just saying, oh, you're gay? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of in being part of the community in the office, I've never once felt weird about it. I was very, I've always been very comfortable in our office. Uh, and it wasn't true in, in other offices I worked in. And there was also just in some of the other offices I've worked in, there was just a bit of toxic culture uh, and a lot of, um, of, of hyper-masculinity and heteronormativity in some of those other offices that just didn't exist in minor league baseball's office. And I think that's you know, to the credit of what our new HR director who came in about four or five years ago and kind of helped change the culture a little bit of the organization. And it put an emphasis on, on hiring the staff that was more different. I think because there's such a wide variety of perspectives and not only in terms of race, gender, and sexual orientation, but where they come from, from across the country and their, and their, their experience in the industry, et cetera. Um, there's a whole, a whole wide range of diversity that I think, you know, made it for me easier. Um, you know, when I started there, I was the only person on staff who was out and part of the LGBTQ community. Um, about four months in, they hired a new, uh, office manager and, and and she's part of the LGBTQ community and so for me it was powerful to see someone like her um, also join our team and she's older than me and, and she has uh, and I don't know how old she is but she just had her first child and um, with her wife and you know we got to have those conversations with her about you know she, she got to take um, you know maternity leave and uh, she gets all the same benefits uh, as our you know straight married couples and I definitely feel more comfortable uh, in the office just seeing 
how positive her experience has been uh, and how much respect and love she has gotten starting a family as a member of the LGBTQ community. I'm not in a relationship and I haven't been in a relationship since I started at minor league baseball. So I can't speak on, you know, bringing a partner to an event and, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. And certainly it's, it, it might be a bit odd and I haven't had to do it before. So I don't know what that's going to be like, but I will say that I, I, I've always felt comfortable in our office and uh, I have felt that my perspective is, has been valued and particularly with the fact that we launched our, our pride campaign this year, you know, to have someone in the office who was part of the LGBTQ community um, is inherently valuable. You know, you don't want to start a pride campaign and have only people who are straight working on it. It would be disingenuous. So I think that my perspective was valued almost from day one uh, because of the fact that they were going to put an emphasis on activating this audience in 2019. Yeah, that's cool. I spoke to Noel Guevara months and months ago she's the arizona diamondbacks right she does community very well um and talking to her about you know her coming up with pride night creating it running it and just her her portion of it all and what it meant to her as well i could see how important it would be for you yeah and to have my first job too right like growing up i had this, i couldn't imagine myself even up until during my undergrad and, and part of my graduate um, school experience i couldn't imagine being out and working in the industry. So to have my very first job, to have the fact that I am part of the LGBTQ community, not only be a non-issue, but actually an advantage, uh, what's kind of surreal um, to be actually valued for that uh, was something that just countered everything that I thought growing up. Um, I thought this would be something that would hold me back. And in many ways, it's actually helped advance me in my career. And, and I think that, you know, writing that story on out sports helped change and pivot where my career was going and introduced me to new people and, and, and just really helped me build myself. And I became a better employee and a better professional because I was able to truly be myself. Um, so it's, it is definitely powerful. And to have that be my first role in sports, to be so accepted and empowered to really lean into who I was and, and talk about it openly in our office, because it was important to talk about it, given where we were in, in the business space. Uh, and pride um, was so cool and so powerful, and I'm very grateful that my first experience was like that because it's, it's it it is not the case for many. Yeah, yeah, it's such a, a cool thing you're doing there, and and with that, you um, I think it was what a week ago, two weeks ago, you announced that you have a new position within minor league baseball. Yeah, so I uh, just got promoted. Initially, when I started, this was going to be a one year role as part of our associate program, and I was able to proved myself quite a bit throughout the year. And uh, I knew I had known a promotion was coming for about a couple of months and it finally became official a, a few weeks ago. And I'm excited that I get to stay in minor league baseball and, and continue to do this work. And because um, like I said, this is never going to be a one-year campaign. This is going to be a continuous process. And now I can officially sink my feet in and, and make this city into my home and, and help these campaigns grow uh, and work with all 160 of our teams to ensure that they're better uh, connected to their community in every sense, whether it's the LGBTQ community or, or other demographics. That's so cool. Congratulations on that. And that's awesome that you Thank get to you. do that. And you're able to do that for so many because like that 60-year-old uh, man that you talked with or the kids coming to these games, you're affecting the lives of so many pe people seeing that there are others like them, that they can pr do it in professional sports. Um, so it's just really cool. We have been talking for about an hour, so I, I don't want to keep you much longer. I do uh, end every episode asking you this. 
if you go back in time to when you were 12 or 13 and your sexuality was just becoming a thing or you were starting to struggle with it, what's that one thing that you can go back and tell yourself to help you to make it easier for acceptance for you? I would say, of course, I mean, the cliche is that it's going to get better. Uh, so the doubt that you have now um, will not last forever. Uh, and I would probably hand in my business card <laughs> <laughs> and say, Look at this, Ben. You're working at minor league baseball in the league office. You're valued for who you are, and you're doing something that, you know, if I knew what my job was going to be when I was 13, where I am now at, at 25, it would be the coolest thing in the world. Because, I mean, I, I at that point, I really wanted to work in baseball, and to know that I would be working in baseball for an organization like minor league baseball would be so powerful and reassuring. But I would say wholeheartedly that it, that it gets better, um, that your perceptions are just not real. Uh, and to be true to yourself, you know, I, I don't, I don't regret anything in my life. I don't think regrets do you any good. But certainly, you know, I could have come out a little bit sooner and, and, and maybe had a different experience throughout my college uh, years if I wasn't living in such fear. And so I would just say to, to my younger self to be fearless uh, and to know that it gets better and give my business card. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Thank you so much, Ben, for coming on. Of course. No, thank you for having me. And thank you for doing the work that you do to, to help these stories uh, be heard. Thank you, Ben, so much for coming on during the holiday season. We recorded this late December. We had a good chat. I hope you got something out of it. Baseball season's around the corner. Pitchers and catchers start coming in early February, I believe, for most teams. So get ready for baseball season. Anyways, next week I'll have an all-new guest. I hope you uh, have an awesome week and I will see you next week.